1: hello and welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast for those of you that are new here the breaching extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them there are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left and they are currently threatened by lack of prey vessel noise and water toxins all these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello everybody. Welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week I'm here with Ketke Jog. She is a researcher and she recently published a paper that we are going to talk about here titled Marine Mammal Interactions with Fisheries, Review of Research and Management Trends Across Commercial and Small-Scale Fisheries. How are you doing today Ketki? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well.
0: Thank uh, you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, I'm excited to have you here. Um, So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? What inspired you to want to study marine mammals? And what are you doing now? Yeah.
0: Um, So hello, everyone. Uh, I'm from Mumbai originally. um, That's on the West Coast of India. And how I got into marine mammal research, I think you could Easily say it was by fluke. I always was interested in studying ecology, and I started out with um, volunteering for different um, mm-hmm. institutes and you know colleges and people who were doing research projects within India. And I started studying actually butterflies and mostly herpetofauna, and that's how my interest in ecology grew. And then I think it was this one trip that I took um, through a course that I was doing, um, a trip to the field site that I work in right now, which is the Sindhudurg district along the west coast of India. And I think I fell in love with the um, landscape, the coastal landscape and the, you know, the fishing communities. And that was it. That was my in into this field. So I started doing this work roughly around 2011, 2012, and here I am now doing my PhD. I started my PhD in 2019 and continuing right now. I think I'm supposed to finish in another year, so it's crunch time for me now. Yeah, so the paper that I published right now is my first chapter, and this PhD is based on um understanding more deeply the interactions between marine mammals and fisheries, particularly the coastal small-scale fisheries in India, especially the West Coast.
1: Wow, that is really awesome. I'm sure we'll, like, dive into it, but I'm curious to see what similarities and differences there are culturally with the fishing industry in the United States versus in India, because I'm obviously Mm -hmm. more familiar with the U.S., That's really fascinating. So tell us a little bit about your study. What made you want to look into this? And why did you have questions about fisheries and marine mammals?
0: Yeah. So when I started out in 2012, it was just a basic study to look at what's out there and where it is found, mainly marine mammals. And we found, like, when I say we, it's my team and I, I work with two other incredible people um, now also doing their PhDs. So our team sort of found out quite interesting things. Uh, There's more than a few species of marine mammals on our coastline, which was a fact that we didn't, I mean, we knew about it, but we didn't know where they were found, what their habitat was. And that's how I first got introduced to the humpback dolphins, which is my study species. And what happened was because we were low on funds in the first few years of our study, we couldn't actually take our boats out or hire boats to get our surveys done. So we did some interviews with the fishing communities that are, uh, you know, operating along the coastline because of the best source of information we could think of. And we read a few papers that did perception surveys and got the information on marine mammal distribution from fishermen. So we started asking them questions about what do you see, what kind of animals do you see um, when you go out fishing? And we used to show them pictures of what may or may not be found. And that's how we sort of figured out that humpback dolphins and finless porpoises are coastal species of marine mammals from um, along this coastline. And the more we delved into the life of these marine mammals, the more we realized that these animals do interact with fisheries quite a bit. I mean, you put two or more entities together in the same habitat, sharing the same resource, interactions happen. Um, And so the first thing that we noticed was um, the fishermen, especially the gill-neck fishermen uh, along the coast had very negative perceptions of comeback dolphins. Because apparently humpback dolphins gouge big holes in the nets because they feed from the nets. The behavior is called as depredation. Mm. So because of which there was used to be a lot of gear damage. There is a lot of gear damage and catch loss for the fishermen. So they have negative perceptions of these dolphins. So that was my inspiration for my PhD question. Um, we knew, we knew that this was happening, but now I want to quantify it and see exactly what is happening and what is the social, ecological, um, and economic impact of this interaction, both on the fishers and the ecological impact, obviously, on the fisheries and the dolphins.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So... Um, just for context, for our listeners and for myself, just because you're in a totally different part of the world and I'm sure that there are cultural differences, how, you know, obviously they, they don't like the, the humpback dolphins are there, you know, is it typical for people to place a high value on cetaceans? Like in America, I feel like we put cetaceans on a pedestal for being like the coolest animal out there. It's like the one thing that people want to protect. How does the public generally perceive cetaceans?
0: Uh, As per the Indian Wildlife Protection Act, uh, the cetaceans are in the highest schedule, especially Humback Dolphins. They're in the Schedule 1, where they are offered the highest protection. But when we started out doing the surveys, I mean, honestly, I mean, full confession, I did not know when I started out in 2000, whatever, 8 or 9, when I was doing recce surveys, In the area, I did not know we found humpback dolphins or finless porpoises in our area. I mean, I knew what they were, obviously learn about these things that they're found in waters along our coastline, but I've never seen them. Also, there's a general lack of awareness. There used to be a general lack of awareness about marine mammals. Um, Obviously, there's a fascination amongst most of the populace, you know, um, wherever you go about marine mammals I think it's just the idea that they're mammals that they can breathe underwater right? or they just look weird yeah. or people who are not aware that they're mammals they just look you know different they, they don't look like any other fish of any sort you know Absolutely. Um, so yeah there's this sort of general uh, lack of awareness about these animals so I don't think here people really put them on a pedestal in that sense because, yeah, we're not aware that they're mammals in the first place. Although I would say that it's changing now. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, when we started out, that wasn't the case. But um, as time went by, more and more researchers were looking at and studying marine mammals and looking at the ecology and the habitat and You know, the more you publish in popular media, the more sort of momentum this information gains. And yeah, there's more awareness. So, yeah. I mean, I I would say that kids are super interested and they definitely kind of put them on a pedestal uh, once they get to know that they're mammals and they're like, oh, yeah, that's interesting and we should protect them. And, you know, they're fascinating, those kind of things. But other than that, I would say, yeah. We need to work more on the awareness. Not necessarily, no one puts them, yeah. gives them that high regard otherwise. Yeah.
1: For sure. That totally makes sense. So they're not really known about in general, and then the fishermen don't have the best relationship. So what interactions... Um, did you find when you were reviewing your study? Because I know you went all the way back to 1995 and kind of did like a meta-analysis. Um, yeah, yeah. What'd you find?
0: Yeah, so what I did as a part of my first chapter here uh, was that just look at the interactions in a on a global perspective and see how these interactions have been studied through time in different. Parts of the world and in different kinds of fisheries, different kinds of fishing communities, different species of marine mammals. So that's the rationale behind the literature review. It is extensive, but I may have, because it's a systematic review, and it's the, well, to give you a little context and give the listeners a little context, if I'm doing a systematic review of any kind, I have to. Um, you know, narrow down on certain keywords, which are based on my research question for the mm-hmm. chapter. So when your search is sort of limited to those keywords. So it, it is extensive, but just for those set of keywords. So I may have missed a lot of literature uh, in that search, but that's how systematic reviews are conducted, just to see what's going on. And it's basically to fill to understand what gaps there are in research and where my research in general can be placed in that context. So when I was doing this, I found that there's not much going on or there's not much uh, of research within the small scale fisheries, you know, um, realm in the sense about interactions. Most of the research is concentrated on commercial fisheries in developed countries. Uh, well, I would not say developed anymore actually because the definitions have changed. So I would say high-income countries and um, you know, uh, commercial fishies like long line and trawling, purse and signing. because I think the first instance of um, marine mammal interactions and in fisheries in a sense in the modern sort of what what you can say modern world maybe. Mm-hmm. Was with the large scale capture of uh, bottlenose dolphins and, you know, in the pursuit fishing in in the US. Uh, What starts off, I think, the interactions is because as human beings and uh, as other living things sharing the same resource, we end up depending on each other a bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what happens is because marine mammals are so intelligent they sort of, as the resource gets depleted, sort of, or if they find that it's easier to capture the resource with the help of something and use something as a tool, they will obviously be inclined towards using that tool. And in some cases, those tools are fisheries, you know, because fisheries, as a function of how they work, they show the uh, fish together in some cases, or, I mean, it's easy resource because fish are already available in the net. So it's easier for the marine mammals to access these fish as well. So what I did was segregate the interactions. Uh, there's a whole lot of literature available on um, the definition of these interactions um, since the time they've been studied. It, and the definitions constantly you know, evolve. Uh, but I focused majorly on um, bycatch and depredation. Those mm-hmm. are the two types of interactions. And I looked at how these interactions like bycatch and depredation are studied throughout time, it is it's in commercial and small scale fisheries. So to give us little context, little more context, bycatch is unwanted catch mm-hmm. of marine mammals in fisheries and depredation is when marine mammals feed off of uh, fisheries. So they snatch or they, you know, steal fish from the nets. So we found that uh, most of the studies in bycatch and um, depredation are concentrated in commercial fisheries Mm -hmm. in developed or high income group uh, countries. And there's now people are sort of now researchers are sort of uh looking at depredation as a behavior and more and more researchers are now looking at bycatch in smaller scale fisheries as well in low-income countries but because the resources that we have in low-income countries are you know there's they're not much because these kind of things studying marine mammals going out onto the boats it's quite labor intensive and financially uh, you know, uh, intensive as well. So we need a whole lot of money uh, for a long duration of time, for a continuous period of time if we want to monitor these things. So this sort of research area is just, I would say, gaining more and more momentum now. So we are looking at a lot of rise in the number of studies uh, based on depredation and bycatches, marine mammals, and small-scale fisheries. Uh, which is good uh, because what we realize now is that there is a high percentage of bycatch and there's also quite a bit of depredation happening uh, in small-scale fisheries. Small-scale fisheries also lead to a lot of bycatch. And also most of it, because it has gotten undocumented for so long, because of the nature of small scale fisheries, it becomes really difficult to actually put these numbers in a global perspective. So it's like a, it's, it's a compounded effect where, yes, the studies are happening now and we, we're getting more and more information, but it's just the nature of fisheries is so compounded, you know, politically, socially, economically, that it gets difficult to gather that kind of information, uh, particularly from small-scale fisheries. So yeah, that's the gist of what's been going on, what, what I've done. Yeah.
1: yeah, no, that makes sense. We definitely have a lot of tensions between like government organizations and like NOAA and scientists, oh. people that are working to conserve and fishermen because, you know, it's a perceived threat of like, you know, if they find out, they're potentially doing something wrong it's going to impact their livelihood and so it completely makes sense why they're on the yeah
0: yeah and i think for the most part what happens is uh it's it's just the problem with i wouldn't say only small-scale fisheries but it's a compounded problem with small-scale fisheries because they don't get documented as much within the register you know in the economics of it all so thoroughly. So there'll be, say, for example, there'll be a thousand nets, postal gillnets or shore-signed boats in a given area, but only 200 or 300 of them get documented, you know, in the national register as having, you know, their registrations and licenses. So that's The problem is, that's a problem as well, because you're underestimating the number of folks, but a large chunk of the population is still dependent on these fisheries uh, for their livelihood, more than even commercial um, fishing. So just to keep a track of all of this, in any case, to to monitor fisheries is a huge political issue that we are facing. So add to it the dynamic of small scale fishers uh, it just gets even the waters getting even more clear, so to say. And because they're restricted to smaller areas, I feel like they're more diverse in nature because they don't cross certain boundaries that commercial fisheries cross. So they're restricted to their own little, you know, smaller areas. So each kind of fishery then becomes its own sort of entity, and then it gives rise to a whole different. Um, Set of problems altogether. So each of the fishery will be governed by a different set of you know rules, that kind of thing. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean,
0: to I'm just basically simplifying it. It's definitely not that simple. But oh
1: yeah, I guess it
0: helps. Uh, I guess it helps the listeners to understand what (laughs) I'm trying to get to. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, I think so. I you know, obviously, it's it's definitely a lot more complex, and we're you know, your study covered quite a few areas and a large period of time. So, yeah, obviously, you know, it's not going to be that yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, from this study, do you see different management tactics that need to put in, be put into place? Um, it like what you know can be done to kind of both help the fishermen and the humpback dolphins from avoiding this human-wildlife conflict and other marine mammals and other fisheries in other areas?
0: So that's what I'm trying to propose through the paper is that in order to first understand, or in order to, first, in order to um, propose any management for any kind of fishery, uh, particularly when we are talking about low-income countries and small-scale fisheries, that, I, as I explained before, are very local. We need to understand what is happening within each of those fisheries. So, and, and perceptions of people are such a thing that they may be, at the end of the day, they're perceptions. So in order to quantify them, you have to delve a little deeper. Perceptions will give you a rough idea of what is happening. Now I know that, okay, compact dolphins are supposedly a problem. Mm. But for a fisherman, and I mean, for a fisherman, we need to understand, okay, dolphins are a problem, but then understand w- what grade of a problem that is within these issues, whether they're actually a problem or not, because otherwise we end up proposing a management strategy for so something that need not be managed, or we we'd, we'd underestimate it and propose a strategy that may not help at all you know, Mm. or may help in the short term and does not work in the long run kind of thing. So what we need to do and what I'm proposing is to understand these fisheries and the interactions that they have with marine mammals in in a very local context and then start ground up work from, you know, the grassroots where we understand, okay, this is what's happening. We are going to quantify this now then these are the management strategies that are in place. How do they help or how do they don't help and involve the local people in the process, not just them at the management level, but in the research as well. Absolutely. Um, so what I'm trying to do uh, is basically to quantify these interactions. So now that I know that dolphins are a problem, now I'm trying to understand how much of the economic damage that happens to fisheries can be attributed to dolphin depredation. Mm -hmm. And whether dolphins are getting entangled in the nets and how it is affecting uh, the dolphins, how feeding from the nets or how the depredation behavior is affecting these dolphins as well. So looking at both the size, the human and as well as the animal dimensions, and mainly the human dimensions where I'll be involving um, the local fishers to understand how we can take the management forward. Like, for example, we have a compensation scheme in place, Mm -hmm. but the more I talk to fishers, the more I realize that it's not as easy to avail these compensation schemes because you have to show evidence of their predation. But most of the times, the evidence is not taken seriously, or it's so easy to sort of misrepresent the evidence or even, you know, sometimes it happens, you, you're in need of money, the resource is depleting anyway, so you're going to show anything as evidence to get the compensation. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of feeds into this, you know, feedback loop where the government doesn't trust you, and then you don't trust the government, that kind of thing.
1: Absolutely. So,
0: yeah. So, I, I mean, obviously we're not gonna find a quick solution and this is such an age old problem which is just gonna get compounded through time because like I said, we're looking at a resource that two entities in this case are dependent on which is already depleting. Mm-hmm. And we're already seeing a uh, sort of change even though for this region, I could say that it's anecdotal that I think more and more dolphins are depending on you know different kinds of fisheries for their uh, uh, to feed off of to survive i think it's not proven yet we haven't quantified that yet so it's gonna be a problem more and more fishers are now ingressing towards coastal waters which is again ingressing into the dolphins habitat so these interactions will only probably increase So to understand first what's going on and to quantify it is the first step, particularly when you're talking about small-scale fisheries and involving local communities in that process and not alienating them in the process because ultimately the management strategies are for them. So if something is not working to them, uh, for them, it doesn't make sense to have that strategy. So to understand... To that social aspect of it, to understand how the livelihoods are affected is the first step. So that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. No, I, you know, that's very important. And if we look back in a variety of different areas of history of how we manage wildlife, just based on what we felt like was a good idea, based on what little information we had, it never goes well. So,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: It's definitely better to, you know, be slow and well-informed, um, rather than just rushing in. Um, yeah. what is the like population status of the humpback dolphin? Are they a fairly healthy population or are they a little bit more endangered or threatened?
0: So based on the study that our team conducted in 2012, uh, we had a, a bit of a photo ID aspect that we looked at as well, where we photo ID'd the dolphins and did a sort of population study. So based on those analyses, at that time, uh, we had an estimate of around 720 individuals. Um, So considering the area and um, the habitat and everything, I think that could be considered, considered as a healthy population. Um, although I have not done, I've not continued um, that study further. And this friend of mine actually is now looking at abundance estimates as well. Uh, she's studying humpback dolphin acoustics and finless use acoustics as well and using um, acoustics to look at abundance of these animals. So we'll know even more um, what the situation is now with the population, not the population as, as a whole, but just to understand how things are being, you know, uh, obviously it's variable. So we'll figure out now where we stand. We won't get numbers, but we'll see what the densities um, sort of are. But I think it's safe to assume that the population is still okay. Mm. Uh, But that doesn't mean that there there aren't any concerns because um, these animals do get stranded particularly Um, Smaller individuals do get caught in um, fishing gear or this sort of more, there's more deaths in that uh, sort of age group, uh, the smaller individuals and calves or juveniles. So we need to be on the lookout and we need more data to actually um, be sure what the status of the population is at this point. And as it goes with any study, continuous monitoring is the key to understanding what's happening with these uh, with any ecology, you know, any ecological um, sort of paradigm, in, in a sense. Yeah,
1: absolutely, that totally makes sense. Um, are the humpback dolphins just p- specific to India, or do they live in other parts of the world as well?
0: Uh, they do live in other parts of the world. Uh, they have an extensive population, uh, sorry, extensive range uh, from the, from South Africa to about, um, where can I say, even Australia. Okay. Uh, but in each of these regions, they're different species. So the genus is, uh, the species are different. And I think Sousa Columbia the species that I'm studying uh, was recently recognized as a distinct species. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think what happens is they're found all along uh, all along all the coastlines in the world. But what happens is because they're restricted to a tiny area along the coast, I don't think they traverse in deeper waters like other oceanic species. They're more coastal species. Mm -hmm. Um, They have these sort of blocks of population, blocks of habitats that they use. That's why they get separated over time and um are, are sort of distinct species. So what we thought in our region in India was two species before uh one species could be we we figured it could be two species a few years ago and yeah oh. there were two species. Yeah so Okay,
1: that totally makes sense. So is that like how do you guys determine that there are different species? Is it like how does that compare? Because when I'm thinking about like orcas, we have like resident and then transient orcas. How does do those guys compare to like our ecotypes? Is it the same sort of thing or is there something that you guys study that makes it like specifically a different species?
0: So there's a lot of morphological um, studies that kind of determine that these are distinct species. There is a lot of other people working on um, this particular topic, because if it's a distinct species, that means a different population, and therefore the evaluation of that population completely changes in the context of the larger picture. So just to give you an example, if we thought that we just had one species along the Indian coastline, then the IUCN status, uh, Remained, I think, vulnerable mm-hmm. for the species. But now that we have two species, the Plumbia type is in danger mm-hmm. because there's lesser numbers, obviously, of these animals.
1: For sure.
0: Um, so that's how it gets affected. How these things come into being, in the sense that how we find out about these things, is that the more we go out, the more we look at these animals, we look at their morphological defenses, the physiological, uh, and then we delve into the physiology of these animals. There's a lot of people doing genetics. My husband, in fact, is working on uh, understanding the population dynamics of the species along with the Indian coastline. So his work revolves around collecting samples from dead individuals and processing them to understand how each species is different and when the differentiation could have happened, in a sense, so, and these things have been done over time. So that's how we come to know that, okay, yeah, we, there's different species and different locations, yeah. Awesome. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think, no, that definitely is. <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. um, and we've definitely kind of touched on that in previous episodes, talking about the rice as whale and how that was distinguished to be a different mm-hmm species from the bride's whale um amazing so you mentioned that this is the first chapter of what you're working on is this eventually going to be a book or a journal or just a series
0: yeah it will be my thesis okay um so it would be technically the first book that I've ever written so yeah yeah so this is going to be a part of my thesis and this sort of paper that we discussed briefly initially was an introduction to how my study would be placed, uh, the context of my study, so Absolutely. to say, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Um,
1: well, we'll definitely have to look out for that um, when it comes out. Um, and I'm you know, curious to see how this plays out with management in the next like, decade or so, because I'm sure that what you're studying will have an impact uh, yeah. amazing so what have you learned from all this because I, like I do really find like m- honestly sometimes more so than animals the human wildlife dynamic very fascinating what have you kind of learned from the dynamic between fishers and marine mammals
0: so it's quite funny actually I used to think of myself as an asocial being um you know when you are when i started out i was very young um i was 20 22 and i was on my high horse thinking oh i'm researching these amazing animals and that's how it's going to be i'm going to study their behavior and you know i don't want to deal with humans at all and just i was in that mindset but the more i got to know i mean When you're conducting research in any area, obviously you need to, you come in contact with people because unless people in that area help you, your research goes nowhere. And especially I feel along the coast or in any small community, like the fishing community here that I study with, I would say they're close communities. They're small communities. So they're very protective of everything and it, the, the most important lesson that I learned was that no matter what I do no matter how groundbreaking my results are or how non-pioneering my work is how basic it is that region is still there the resources are still there and I'm an outsider and I have to be very respectful of that um I have to be respectful of them as human beings and understand at every point that without their help, my work will not, I, I mean, I wouldn't have been here if it, was, it wasn't it was their help, you know? For sure. It takes a village, they say, and that was literally my village. But I, I wouldn't be doing my PhD if they wouldn't have cooperated with me. We, as researchers, I think we are sometimes oblivious to that we always think about yeah i'm studying a species i get to know a certain area and i want to save it but we need to understand that we are not the only ones who want to save it and whoever is in that area whose area that belongs to the community that it belongs to Mm -hmm. they probably have a much better idea of how to save it or how to you know even begin to understand um whether it needs saving or not in the first place. And that's that's where I'm going to is in, in the in the sense that we always need to look for the human dimension of it all does will not will never escape us. And I think it's just that that we have to be a little grounded in whatever we are looking at, whatever we are trying to research or even when we find out something things, it's always the human dimension that will ground us because at the end of it we're working with humans we are you know human beings that get affected by all of these issues as well so i think that that's the main lesson that i learned kind of came down my high horse um i yeah so so to speak came down my high horse and said yeah it's not gonna work out if i don't um if i'm not humble and if i'm not understanding of what's happening if I'm not understanding of the communities that I work with and what they own and what belongs to them always will yeah
1: absolutely no I think that that is beautifully said um I definitely noticed that throughout the podcast we do have like overarching themes and then we also have smaller themes you know as well and I think two of the smaller themes that I've noticed are like coming together and working together and then as well um, caring about the ecosystem as a whole and not just those big megafauna. Um, but one thing that always comes up is ego. And I think you, you know, touched on that with saying that you were on your high horse. And, you know, that's really great that you're able to acknowledge that because, you know, I definitely noticed that too within like the scientific community, is sometimes, you know, there is that divide between scientists and you know, the people who are having this negative experience with wildlife, um, or, you know, maybe it's not a negative experience or who are, you know, the ones being studied. Um, and it definitely, I you know, all of the studies where things go well, it seems like it's all based in like, it's community based management. And we definitely yeah, exactly. trust what they're saying. Like they've been out there for for years. So they're definitely going to have a much better idea than some of us. Who yeah. Have been yeah. Out there exactly yeah so I I really love that um well I really appreciate you being on the podcast do you have any final thoughts for our listeners
0: um yeah just that um be grounded even if you're on a high horse it's 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 the fact that if you can acknowledge it at some point and get off it absolutely (laughs) at there is risk of sounding rude i think and uh yeah considering the times we're in um just keep the peace uh fight for what you're passionate about find out what you're passionate about and fight for it but yeah use the help that you're getting basically yeah. you're not alone
1: yeah i think <laughs> that's really yeah. important definitely yeah Awesome. Well, I definitely love the perspective that you brought to this. And I think it's, you know, we all need to be humbled sometimes, even those of us that are maybe more aware of that need to, you know, step down sometimes as well. Like it's easy. Yeah. to do. So I, I appreciate that you're, you know, able to acknowledge that because I think that it kind of gives other people permission to acknowledge that as well. Um, yeah, so really important. Well, we are going to keep our eyes peeled for your thesis when it's done. And I am very inspired by the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for being on the podcast.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Erica. This is amazing. This is a lot of fun.
1: Thank Good. you.
0: All righty. All right.